From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. Welcome, I'm Ben Schockman. Thank you for joining us. On this episode, we're tackling two very different issues, both challenging in their own way. Later on the show, we're going to be talking about New Hanover County's landfill problem. It's a literal mountain of garbage. It's the highest point in the county and covers hundreds of acres, but most people have never seen it and rarely think about it. And that's actually part of the problem, which we'll get into with our guest Evan Folds. But first, a different problem. It might be too cutesy of a segue to say that this is also a garbage situation, an issue that, in spite of its size and seriousness, often seems to be out of sight, out of mind. I'm talking about the recent resurgence of rhetoric and legislation targeting the queer community, particularly, but by no means exclusively, trans people. It's an issue that sometimes gets wrapped up as part of the culture wars, but I think that sometimes glosses over the fact that we are, at the end of the day, talking about people, not abstract cultural values. To get into this, we're talking to Caroline Morin, who runs the LGBTQ Center of the Cape Fear Coast. And before we start, just two quick notes. First, we recorded this interview prior to the incident involving Proud Boys crashing a Pride event at the Pine Valley Library. So if you're wondering why we didn't get into it, that's why. Second, this interview does contain a gay slur, and we're not bleeping it out. I think when you hear it in context, that'll make sense. But just a caution, just in case. All right, well, my guest now is Caroline Morin. She's the executive director of the LGBTQ Center for the Cape Fear Coast, formerly the Frank Har Center. Caroline, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start and ask you, you've been at the uh, LGBTQ Center of the Cape Fear Coast for about a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, how's it going? It's going really well. It's going really well. It's uh, a pretty small organization as far as staff and resources, so I feel like it's kind of taken me the first year to just wrap my arms around the scope of what we do, but uh, it's going really well. And for people who don't know, this used to be the Frank Har Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk a little bit about what the mission here is. Yeah, so the Frank Har Foundation, which is now the LGBTQ Center of the Cape Fear Coast, was founded um, in 2009 as a resource and advocacy center for LGBTQ folks in the Cape Fear region. Um, We've had folks come from about 11 counties around New Hanover. And so when it originally started, it was because there were some youth in the community who were being harassed for being LGBTQ. And Frank and his partner, Ken Cox, uh, decided to do something about it. And so that kind of naturally grew over time. And then as the area has grown and gotten larger, the organization kind of realized they needed more visibility. And that while it is lovely and we continue to honor Frank's memory, having a name that is directly tied to the community helps people find us and access our resources in a different way. So um, right when I was coming on, the organization had made the decision and is now the LGBTQ Center, but we still provide the same resources, advocacy, and support for everybody from youth to elders. So one question I hear a lot is from, as we know, this is a city of transplants, right? a city of expats, as we call them. Um, and being queer and showing up in a new city, depending on what that city is like, can be tough. It's a little easier to find your tribe in, say, New York City or San mm-hmm. Francisco than it is in Wilmington. So what does that look like, and how can you help people with stuff like that? So I think one of the things that was a little jarring for me coming from a major metro, like I lived in Boston and for just a few months was in L.A. before I came here. And so from a visibility perspective, it was just hard to find queer people in this area. Uh, And I think there's a couple of reasons. One, I think, is a lot of people still have fear about being visible, like physical fear, uh, as well as emotional and mental consequences. So. 
Uh, it just like took a little longer to kind of suss out where people were. Um, that was like six years ago when I moved here. And I will say since then, there's a lot more visibility. I think particularly uh, in my experience, people who are in their 30s and 40s and queer are realizing that um, ground is being lost essentially in our civil rights fights. And as concern over youth suicide and other things uh, becomes an issue, we really have to do more to speak out and be visible. And so I think that that contributes as well. Sure. I mean, I as, as a middle-aged white cisgender guy, right, I'm not the most tapped into this, but I, I watch the news. I work in the news. It seems like there has been a resurgence of homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic in general kind of language it, and, and legislation to go along with it. Mm-hmm. How, what does it look like from your point of view? So depending on the day, I'm either really angry and depressed about it or kind of trying to look at it as a glass half full thing. And when I see it as the glass half full thing, it's about the pendulum and the arc of justice and all these sort of long term things we talk about. And when I'm able to hold it in that space, it's as a last dying gasp of this right wing faction of people who, for some reason, have staked their claim on denying the full humanity of their uh, fellow humans. So... When I hold it in those spaces, it's a little easier to see it as like, okay, well, we're going to keep pushing through these fights right now. But also these things, I hope, are the the tail end, the final backlash of folks finally recognizing that queer people are just like everybody else. We're just normal people. Being queer is like the least interesting thing about me. <laughs> um, and so... It, it really is uh, hard to hold, though, from a perspective of, like, people are killing themselves, trans women are being murdered at an exorbitantly high rate, and all of that comes back to this same rhetoric that I honestly intellectually don't really understand. Like, I've heard the arguments. I understand that there are some religious arguments. There are some people who prefer to see it as a a right and wrong moral issue. But for me, it's always been hard to come around to any ideology or anything that was just centered on other people being less valuable than myself or anything like that. So, um, yeah, it's just difficult to understand in a lot of ways than other than that framing of like, this is a tool, this is a pawn. These are people's lives that are being used to achieve some short term political or socioeconomic gain. And I hate that. But I also think that's a lot easier to tackle than holding my job as convincing people that everyone is human and deserves to be treated fairly. Right. And so you traveled a lot, right? Mm -hmm. You've seen a lot of parts of this uh, very diverse, very strange country. (laughs) Um, Is there something in particular about coastal southern bigotry that is different? Because in my experience, uh, I'm a Yankee. I admit that it looks different up there. Mm -hmm. You know, can you put your finger on what it's what is that thing? Yeah, I don't know. That's something I grapple with a fair amount. Uh, I will say that I've had discussions with folks and sort of anecdotally we agree that there is something easier about dealing with overt bigotry, like people who just say, no, I don't like who you are. <laughs> and uh, you can engage with those people in a different way. It's, it's really hard to help educate and um, bring along folks who already think they're where they need to be. Uh, And so that sort of like veneer of niceness that just covers maybe not actually investigating any of the systems that you benefit from, uh, you know, it's a balance for the north-south thing. But I also think that there's something about the, the sort of genteel south attitude where um, 
you know, people will be nice to your face and then just like say and do horrific things behind closed doors. Um, And I think that those are not the people that I find surprising and difficult to work with. It's the people who are in those rooms where the doors are closed who don't say anything back. Mm. And I think that's really the problem that I find in the South is that um, well-intentioned folks stay under that cover of silence like they feel like it would be rude to correct someone when they say something transphobic or they feel like it would be rude and like that's apparently the mortal sin (laughs) it's like being rude or being perceived as uh not nice and honestly uh i i feel like there are a lot of people who see me as very abrasive um and I live with that very comfortably because I would rather be abrasive or perceived as such than be someone who passively allows the victimization of other people or the oppression of other people to go on right in front of me. It feels like we're at a place where even in the deepest part of the South, uh, elected officials, stakeholders, people in power, people with influence uh, seem to have gotten the message that whatever your personal views are, you cannot be an outward racist. Right. You can no longer advocate for segregation. Now, you could certainly say nothing or throw your weight behind policies that segregated schools, for example. Mm-hmm. But you, you could not go out in the public square and use the N-word, for example. Mm-hmm. That would be a no-no. Uh, and they are aware of that. But there seems to be uh, a decaying spectrum, like a gradient of how aware people are of, you know, how inappropriate it would be to say something anti-gay mm-hmm. or especially anti-trans. And it seems mm-hmm. like trans people in particular have been, I mean, you brought the idea of being used as pawns, you know, so we're, we're looking at, you know, um, bills that are aimed at, you know, regulating the lives of trans people um, that on the one hand, it seems like there are very few occasions where these situations would actually come up. Uh, and on the other hand, for the people who are on the other end of that legislation, for example, if I imagine like a small town in Ohio, right? Population 500, one gas station, one stop sign. Mm-hmm. And I am the, I'm, I imagine myself as being the only trans person in that town. And the state has passed a piece of legislation that seems to be aimed at me specifically. Um, you know, so when you talk to people who are, in effect, on the other end of that legislation, what is it, what is it like? It's, it's usually, again, something that I have to sort of like draw on a lot of empathy because I have a difficult time understanding uh, the anti-trans position. Um, there is... I think, you know, the reality is like fear drives sales, it drives elections, it drives all these things, right? And for some reason, um, LGBTQ folks have been set apart as different in a way that needs to be feared. And I think structurally all systems that rely on patriarchy and white supremacy need us to fear difference because it cracks those open in a way. But I also think that like, given how much is going on in the world, people are stressed, there's still a pandemic, we're busy. For whatever reason, because people don't know as much about LGBTQ folks and they maybe think they've never even met one, which is probably incorrect, but um, the lack of knowledge kind of coalesces with that fear factor in this perfect storm of uh, irrationality. Um, I usually just try to understand where it comes from that someone thinks it's okay to legislate other people's bodies. Like, I'm a pretty big fan of a robust government who gives us good schools and makes our streets work well and all of those things. But um, the government deciding who and what body is acceptable in the public arena is way outside of what I think our legislators should be up to. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. We're talking to Caroline Morin, director of the LGBTQ Center of the Cape Fear Coast. So a lot of this stuff is happening at the national level or happening at the state level. Are there issues here in the Wilmington and New Hanover County area that you see that are that are troubling you or give you hope? Uh, I think there's both. The troubling is always easier to answer, honestly, as uh, the director of the center because people often come to us for help. Um, and so, you know, I have a range of people approaching the center for assistance, everything from folks who are unsheltered because they're uh, out as trans and the people that they were living with asked them to go, uh, folks who are being abused at work, misgendered, uh, not even trans folks, um, you know, anybody who is gender nonconforming or even perceived as gender nonconforming. We could get into the weeds about what that means, you know. Um, but, you know, the New Hanover County hasn't passed a non-discrimination ordinance to fully protect uh, LGBTQ folks. The Wilmington, City of Wilmington non-discrimination ordinance, I would argue, is incomplete and has not been updated. And the policy's implementation is reliant on code enforcement officers, uh, which has no overlap with that job. So those things concern me. And I think reinforce the feeling that a lot of queer folks have here that institutionally we are not supported in the ways that we need to be. Uh, We are constantly engaging with folks like the hospital and the schools to try to get education at an institutional level and bring folks up to par. Um, But I my goal is not to create small pockets in Wilmington or the Cape Fear area where queer people are safe. My goal is to make every place safe for queer people. And so that's also been an interesting challenge and a reframe because often when officials or leaders come to me, it's with this kind of explicit intention of like, I want to make my workplace safer or I want to check a box that says that I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's great. And I uh, we offer safe zone trainings through the LGBTQ Center uh, for all types of organizations. And we've done them at private corporations and with all sorts of bodies. But for me, that's just like the tip of the iceberg. If you don't also have policies for your employees, if you don't also have, uh, you know, inward and outward facing messaging, there are all these other things. And uh, it, it just feels like without those, you know, <laughs> this month in particular, we're just suffering from a lot of rainbow capitalism. Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up. It's the rainbow in the room. Uh, you, of course, are here for the obligatory June queer person Ta-da! interview. Um, but, the, I mean, it happens, right? It happens all the time. I mean, take Netflix, for example. You know, Perhaps because of my wife and my sort of eclectic viewing history, uh, these videos might show up. But I'm sure some people are just this month seeing uh, romantic comedies with same-sex couples in them for mm-hmm. the first time in 11 months. Mm-hmm. And they won't see it again. Is there, are there any good parts of having one month of concentrated visibility, or is it just kind of a middle finger? I, I think it depends on how stressed I am when you ask me, but <laughs> right now I'll say it's a good thing. Like I absolutely appreciate, and we rely heavily on the fundraising, messaging, and advocacy that happens during June. For better or worse, people are invested and looking in a different way. Um, obviously, the other side of that is... There are 11 months of the year where we need folks to turn out. We need folks to be at city council or going to policy meetings or donating. And we don't have that kind of year-round advocacy cycle. And so I think it's like for a lot of historically marginalized groups, 
I'm happy to have folks who don't identify or aren't part of the community celebrate with us during Pride Month. But for me, your ticket to participation is that you're doing something every other month of the year. I don't care if that's like you donate $1 or you volunteer your time at an LGBTQ associated organization or you talk to your homophobic relatives at one dinner every month about how maybe their views need to be adjusted. Uh, But one without the other is this sort of shallow gesture that really doesn't do anything and I think in lots of ways compounds the problem because after marriage equality, what a lot of LGBTQ folks and and advocates in the space have seen is this sort of assumption that like, well, now that marriage equality is the law of the land, everything is rosy for queer folks. And it just really isn't the case. So this is something I hear from my queer colleagues and friends a lot, is that there is, and this I think turned a corner after the marriage equality uh, ruling, was that it in some ways sanitized the civil rights struggle for queer people in that now that you can have literally a hallmark, you know, something as inoffensive and milk toast as a hallmark holiday special with a queer couple in it, um, it's kind of taken the punk out of things a little bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and this is, again, one of our obligatory NPR checklists is we have to remind people that Pride was a riot uh-huh. <laughs> uh, fighting back against um, racist, homophobic New York City cops mm-hmm. while living very precariously under the New York mafia who, I, you know, kind of they hated you slightly less than the cops hated you. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that arc right from, you know, black drag queens and trans women mm-hmm. beating the crap out of corrupt NYPD officers in the street mm-hmm. in the West Village to a Hallmark show. You know, has something been lost there? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that there are numerous pride organizations or organizations that have organized festivals and street fairs in the past that are in the midst of completely reevaluating that because of exactly what you said. Like the original pride uh, was, um, yeah, like a one year marking of the Stonewall riots. Right. And the Stonewall riots weren't even the first time that black and brown trans women had to stand up against the police. There were Compton riots in California years before. Like the pattern of harassment of these individuals was deep. And something I like to kind of put for us very explicitly is these people are still alive. These women are not historical figures from some long lost time. These are people who were harassed then who still face the same harassment now. We're having these big like 50 year, 60 year, whatever celebration parties, but we're still dealing with the exact same stuff, except now it's bathroom bans and athletics instead of back then, which was they were being harassed and arrested because it was illegal to quote unquote cross dress or wear gender nonconforming clothes. And so... The look of it might have changed, but the flavor of it has not. Yeah. So how does that translate in terms of modern day respectability politics when people like you, and I'm not going to put you specifically on the spot, but all across the country, right? There are directors of, of centers to support queer and trans people, and they either need to go out and publicly fundraise or get money through, you know, nonprofit funding streams to the government or usually both. Mm-hmm. And it seems like there would be some tension between the desire uh, and I won't use any expletives, but just basically to say, you know, bleep you, you know, we're humans. We would like some help. And, you know, being as cordial and, as you said, as as genteel as possible. Mm-hmm. So oh, how does yeah. that work? This is a constant tension. Uh, it is a really bizarre thing to have to ask your oppressor for money to help fight back against their oppression against you. And that's essentially how I feel a lot of times when I need to go before institutional bodies um, to get money. And I'll be honest with you, we don't get a lot of government or institutional support. Uh, We 
rely heavily on individuals and grant funding. And partly that is uh, because of what's available to us. And partly it is uh, moralistic for me. Like, <laughs> at some point, who gives you the money affects how you spend the money. And so because of the value that we place on the lived experience of the queer people in our community and the way that we think we need to respond to that oppression, I always want to be careful about, yeah, uh, <laughs> tiptoeing up to the table with my hand out. Um, and then also just sometimes find it deeply personally offensive. Uh, I even find myself personally sometimes debating what to wear to something where I'm going to be going as the executive director because it will obviously affect how I'm perceived. That could affect how much money we get. It can also affect how people see queer people. Like, I in no way am the representative of queer people in the area, but because of my job, I am perceived that way by lots of people in institutional positions of power. And so uh, I'm also reminded that like my white cis, uh, generally relatively acceptable presentation. To some people, you might be inoffensively queer. Right, right. Yeah. Although I do exclusively wear men's clothes because I'm somewhat androgynous, you can't necessarily tell. So it doesn't like deeply offend people on the get-go. They're also cheaper and more comfortable and they last They're longer. made better. They have pockets. Like, y'all have this figured out. <laughs> we had the lockdown on pockets for a long time. Definitely cornered the market on that. But I... I I struggle with, yeah, like um, one of my favorite shirts that I have actually, <laughs> it says Fags Bash Back. And um, if I were not in this job, I would wear that shirt all the time and to Pride events in particular. I do not wear that shirt to Pride events in particular right now, given my job, uh, because there is a... <laughs> a narrative resistance to counterviolence or to self-defense that you can't really get into when you're just wearing a t-shirt. And so even though Fags Bass Back is an explicit reference to a phrase that used to be extremely popular, fag bashing, uh, yeah, again, I have to remember that so many people are not a part of my culture and are not a part of the nuance of that. And so in this position in particular, I'm very aware of that white cis gaze. Yeah, for sure. That's and, and I'm sure that's not just in New Hanover County. That's got to be in every struggle in every county mm -hmm. in the country. Mm -hmm. So one of the last things I wanted to ask you about is here, I mean, here locally, the other 11 months out of the year, you know, first I want to ask you, you know, what kind of things you find yourself doing specifically to help people and then maybe how uh, sort of generic cis white middle aged guys like me can help. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, we have tons of things at the center. We have uh, support groups and then we do advocacy at the city, county and school board levels. Um, so, again, I find myself doing an unusual wide range of things. I've helped people figure out where to file discrimination complaints or police reports. Uh, I've helped folks who say, hey, I'm moving to the area. What school should my trans kid go or not go to? Uh, and then just the day-to-day -day management of the center. We have about a half dozen groups right now. And uh, those are everything from youth to seniors. Our oldest regular attendee is 102 years old. <laughs> Happy birthday, Roz. And uh, so we really try to provide services for everybody who comes to us. Uh, we're actually starting a parents group in July that will run concurrently with our youth group. We're just hearing that folks need a lot more support that they're not able to find other places. And I would say that's where everyone comes in. Like You do not
not have to be an LGBTQ person to volunteer at the center or to come to our events or to donate your time. So, uh, you know, we have folks who sit the front desk and help us with administrative things at the center. We have folks who help lead groups, um, social activities like game night. You know, the thing about the LGBTQ Center is it is a place for queer people to thrive, but it is not a place for just queer people. Well, anything else you would want to say? Uh, I just always like to say a little thing about how like queer people are awesome and queer people are normal and should be loved and accepted. And even if you don't love and accept them, it doesn't really matter. It's not up to you. Well, Caroline Morin, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, we need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a moment with Evan Folds to climb the mountain of New Hanover County's garbage problem. You're listening to The Newsroom. Please stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. My guest now is Evan Folds, supervisor with the New Hanover Soil and Water Conservation District. Uh, But that's just one of the many hats that he wears. He's a busy guy and a friend of the show. Evan, thanks for being with us. Great to be here, man. And we're going to talk about the metaphorical garbage fire, (laughs) the garbage situation, the New Hanover County landfill. Mm. So uh, at, at the top of the show, we had some notes about this, but just to recap, We've got about 28 years of landfill space left. We cannot build out because of highways and rivers and other property owned by other people. So the hundreds of acres we have, the highest point in New Hanover County, is bulging with trash. Uh, One of the concerns is that a hurricane like Florence would add or rather take away another 13 years worth of landfill space. Hmm. We've got a contract on the books that would ship that out of the county in the event of a major hurricane. Although it's worth noting that other counties can say no. The state frowns on that, but if a hurricane were to hit the whole coast and everyone's landfills are overflowing, uh, it could be problematic. At the end of the day, I think it's safe to say we are running out of time and space to put our crap, and no one seems really concerned about it. Yeah, no, no, I, I appreciate that softball. I think that's where my interest lies is it's not just an emergency. It's an opportunity, right? And it's important to note that we're not allowed by the state to have more land for landfill. It's not just it's worth too much or, you know, we might not want to. It's like we're legally not allowed to open a new cell. We're at the end, right? So that piece, again, presents an opportunity because we're humans. And frankly, we don't move until there's emergency, right? So I think we're in that sweet spot. And the good thing is there's a tremendous amount of opportunity wrapped around this that I think uh, I'd love to talk to you about today. Well, let's get into it because, you know, some of the problems we're facing here are the region's just growing a lot faster than we thought it would. Mm. Um, and the people who are moving here, because they're humans, are terrible at managing their waste streams. Mm. So, for example, uh, a really pernicious problem is that people do make the effort to recycle, but they make kind of a half-hearted attempt. So you'll get containers of recycling material that's, say, 80% recyclable with some garbage thrown in, even 95% recyclable. There isn't, there's just not enough manpower to sort through all that. And, and other, other states and other municipalities have tried ways of filtering it, but we just don't have the time and energy to do it. So that means all that recycling has to go in there. So it's it seems like the supply side, if you will, if the, the residents who are putting the waste in there. Um, I wish that was a fixable problem, but it might not be. But mm. you've looked at other solutions about how to chisel away at this problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, part of it, I think you nailed it up front, is intent. 
right? I mean, it's not that we don't have the people that could be sorting that properly, right? It's just a matter of budgeting for it and hiring the people to do it. That's so a good point. There, yes. there's a needs to be an appetite, and that's driven money talks, right? Like we're very, it's very difficult to ask counties and cities just to spend more money to do the right thing, right? It has to be positioned because they're already strapped uh, and their taxpayer dollars involved, and there's a lot of people, say half the population, that doesn't want any money spent by the government. So. In that respect, um, there is an opportunity to raise the profile from an ROI standpoint. And, you know, there are now mature waste energy technologies. I know I don't know the history of it, and I need to because it keeps coming up in my thought process uh, talking about this issue that maybe five, seven years ago, maybe you remember there was an incineration conversation that was shot down and sort of a blaze of glory that got pretty high profile. And, you know, at that point, incineration is a no no non-starter here, right? We can't have more smokestacks. You know, we're too environmentally engaged, but the technology has come so far, you can capture all of that and make sure that it's not, you know, hitting the environment in a negative way. Um, And there's also disintegration technologies, you know, that can, using resonance frequencies can break down material into reducing the volume on one level, but also value adding the material. Because there's an issue, you know, we recycle plastic, right? But there's 10 different kinds of plastic. We only recycle two of those, the number ones and the number twos, if you look at the detail on the county websites. So why don't we recycle the rest? The reason is that we don't have enough volume or the market that we have available to us is not doesn't have an ROI. It means we would be spending money to recycle. And that's, I don't know if it's a policy, but it's sort of a, a no-no. So the idea is how do we put this material into a position where it can actually either generate its energy by incinerating it and capturing the off-gas or disintegrating it to make it more conducive to the market we want to sell it to. And if we do that, we could turn the, the landfill into it. it. Even with the existing tipping fees and existing economy of the landfill, we can flip that script and turn it into an even more profitable situation. Yeah, that does seem to be, you know, kind of the bargain local governments are looking to strike is some kind of, if not a public partnership, then some sort of relationship with the private sector where is there a way we can get what we want and a private company can help carry some of the load because it's generating revenue. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's how other cities are doing it too. Portland, Oregon is a good example. They have a, a curbside pickup service they started 15 years ago, and it's mature and it's you know almost completely opted into. And so they're eliminating that level of volume. I typically use the 50% of a landfill waste stream as compostable stat. Joe at the landfill says he'd testify at 70% for our landfill, which is really interesting. That's almost three-quarters of the landfill that we can – not only divert to extend the life of the landfill, but turn into a material that I, I argue is the most important substance on earth, the humus, right? This really high quality, you know, soil material compost that we can use as a stormwater vehicle as to meet the carbon emission sequestration, you know, the capacity that we have to undertake uh, and to improve the quality of the plants that grow. I mean, just drive down Randall Parkway and check the trees out. Next time you drive down Randall Parkway, and it's, it's Edward Scissorhands. It's a graveyard over there. The soil is so poor in, the, in our region that you can literally see it in the trees, you know, in the, in the tops, and the canopies aren't filling out, right? We could fix all of that with our trash. Uh, so I want to unpack two parts of this because they're, they're really interesting to me. And we've had some of these conversations before where they, they always seem to come back. Mm. So the first part is the idea of composting. Yeah. You know, what would it take to – is it – from your point of view, is it that people just are not aware of this? They're not engaged in it? No one's figured out 
I mean, I know there are companies working on this, but it hasn't reached the tipping point where people are aware that there's actually real value in that banana peel you're throwing out. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, part of it is it's just a different way of doing things. You know, this is one space, in my personal opinion, where government is helpful. You can create mandates. Like, if you live in California, you can't throw a banana peel away. Like, that. that's a pretty positive thing in my in my book because people will throw the banana peel away, right? Like, it won't be composted by the majority of people if we make it optional. Uh, and I'd love to be wrong about that, by the way, but that's been my experience. Um, so it's, it's part, partly that, but it, it's, it, you know, there's an X factor here. And if I ask people in the county government, because they're the ones holding the ball for the waste stream, right? Like the city of Wilmington spends, I think it's $1.4 million a year in tipping fees, throwing things away at the county landfill. There's an example of a line item that we could use if there was no landfill right there, right? Um, the city could. But if I ask people at the county level, you know, are we composting? The answer 100% of the time is, well, yeah, Huckleberry out there is composting great, right? The reality is that's a drop in the ocean. And Huckleberry, for people who don't know, yeah, that's the um, sort of— The in-vessel composting it, It's unit. pretty big, but it is kind of a pilot program. It's $400,000 toy yeah. is what it is. Okay. And it's great, and we should pat ourselves on the back and have that moment. And it's really good for, like, compostable cups and things that may be more difficult to break down— it can kind of create a thermophilic reality that melts that in a sense and makes it happen faster. Problems, a couple problems. One is the volume. It's literally a drop in the ocean of the organic matter coming through to the landfill. So it's not actually diverting any waste in scale. Uh, but the second thing is you can't make compost in three days, right? So there's this idea of a limitation of language, right? It's like, are we composting? Yes, but we're not. Are we making compost? Actually, no, right? We're making mulch, and we're cycling that into a material that looks like compost, but it's not humus. It hasn't been passed through the gut of a microorganism, right, which is a different state of material. It's basically high-end mulch with some fertilizer in it that's, you know, soluble. But when you grow in it and the plant grows decent first year, next year it's not working because there's no soil food web. You know, when you – and this is sort of the thing, like – you know, having conversations with, with people, it's kind of like, you know, try drinking a beer without yeast. Like, microbes are really important. Okay, right? I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought this up because this is the second part I want to um, unpack. Yeah. I, I just want to quick put a pin and say that, you know, everything we're talking about is unfortunately going forward, right? We can't dig up the landfill as it is and, and get to that 70% of compostable material the way things are now. Actually, we could talk about that. All right, well, let's talk about it. But as, as, as far as the county approaches things right now, yep. We yeah, could, we could change absolutely. it. All right, right, right. Okay, so maybe story for another time. Yeah, but in terms of what we do going forward, the what you're talking about is some intricate food soil nature science that I think is above a lot of people's heads. But it's it's not that complicated because you've explained right. it to me. Right. <laughs> right. So give people the rundown of, of what you're talking about here. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. That's it is a really important point. Um, we take microbes for granted; we can't see them. Like microorganisms are microscopic organisms. There is another universe under our feet, right? It's fascinating. It's all get out. But, you know, bread, vinegar, kombucha, you know, things that we use almost on a daily basis, right, are created by microbes, cheese, you know. So this concept of microbe, um, the alchemy that is involved in turning one material into another is what microbes do. And so think about a forest. You know, the trees don't eat the leaves that fall. They eat what the microbes make out of it. That's what we call composting. We're leveraging a natural process that should be happening everywhere for human benefit, right? With, with a lack of awareness of that protocol there, we're working against microbes at almost every level. If you take the average lawn care service, 
in Wilmington, pretty much 100% of them are using pesticides and herbicides that are not just killing the target disease you're trying to approach, but all of the other organisms that you do want. So, you know, you end up with this sanitized situation that we're responsible for managing, and that's not how this is supposed to work. You don't have to fertilize a forest and it grows trees, right? So this concept of what we're leaving on the table without imagining it is really profound. It's not just cool. It actually, you know, 1% organic matter increase per acre, which is the result of this microbial decomposition, holds 25,000 gallons of water. That's a 60 by 40 foot swimming pool, four feet deep for 1% organic matter, which is about a quarter inch of compost on a single application. So you imagine a city or county policy where we're taking this diversion from the landfill. We actually have our land care people talk about needing to expand our work uh, capacity. We don't have enough people to do this right now. We'd have to make that investment. But the idea is to have a policy to fortify public lands with compost is not just improving the plant growth and diverting waste. It's actually increasing the soil to hold the stormwater that we can't figure out. And we're spending tens of millions of dollars making culverts bigger, right? So the perspective of how this works is not just the right thing to do. It actually is just a systems thinking play. And the problem is we think in linear terms. Like you, you can't, it's, and, and, and I think that's maybe a way I would move into the question when you ask about that X factor. When I ask the county, are we composting? We haven't looked under the hood. Like we haven't just said, okay, what are we actually doing and what could we do? And could we just have a conversation and connect and make that real and known Versus, are we composting? Well, yeah, we are, right? Like, it's not good enough, right? We need to take that next step and really understand what the opportunity is here. So we're not, I mean, at the very micro scale, right? We're, we're not pushing the process as far as we could right. to really get the qualities. But also, this could be scaled up orders of magnitude. Oh, it could handle the entire volume coming through the landfill. And if our problem is we're running out of space, well, what, what's the best way to save space? Well, stop putting things in the hole, right? And not even getting to the point of the value of all of the things that we're putting in the hole, right? The hole's running out. So our mindset has to change. And big picture, the benefit is we can get humus out of most of it. And we can get, say, tw- you know, say 70% of the landfill is compostable. 20% is valuable or recyclable. 10% has to be destroyed, right? So you take the composting on the 70%. You value add that 20% and find markets for it with the tech that we were talking about, and that last 10% is waste energy, right? And you burn it, and we make energy out of it. There is no landfill. And literally, these companies that can mine landfills, back to that point you made. Okay, they, yeah, let's get into this, because this is next-level stuff. Yep, yeah, they can come and not only they bag and bale and wrap it, is what they do. They prep it for waste to energy, which when you shred it and bale it, you in, extend the life of the landfill four to six times, right there, right out of the gate. And then once you've got the waste to energy investment, it takes five to seven years to build the infrastructure, you can then go back and mine that material and eliminate it. And then they can do the same thing with the legacy material. And what they end up with is you know, a clean slate, and they can actually remediate that land for development. You know, I mentioned King County out in Washington. The land that their landfill is on is worth $800 million. So is there incentive for this county to sign a deal? To do that, well, heck yeah, there is because the land at the end of the day has value, right? Pays for the infrastructure that they had to put in to clean it up. So that's a you know a big example, but an, an example of how you could frame this thing based on what we wanted to accomplish. There's a way to do it for sure. We just need the intent. Okay, I want to put a pin in that for just a minute because we've got to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll have more with Evan Folds about this kind of out of sight, out of mind crisis at the New Hanover County landfill. You're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. Please stay with us. 
Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. I'm here with Evan Folds, and we're talking about New Hanover County's landfill. The landfill is, to put it bluntly, running out of space and time, and we've been talking about some possible ways that we could deal with that. So, Evan, have you had any conversations about applying some of these strategies to the New Hanover County landfill, or has this sort of just been applied philosophy? Yeah, no, that's it. So I've begun to do that. It's been applied philosophy to this point. I mean, I've, my background's 20 years in agriculture. I've seen the composting thing for ages. When Florence hit and we had mountains of wood along the sides of the road, I started raising the profile about biochar, which is also just to simplify the composting operation. You want to take the wood and make biochar. That biochar can clean up Greenfield Lake right now. And I've got a $50,000 study from uh, UNCW that said that they could prove that for us. So there's, that gets back to intent, right? What do we really want to do here? And I don't mean to get too far aside, but Greenfield Lake, we're putting floating wetlands in there, which is an awesome science project. But the roots of plants are not going to clean Greenfield Lake, right? It just gets back to this intent. Like, are we really being serious about this with the opportunity that's at hand? I remember this conversation. This was, and and part of my amateur scientific understanding of this, but we're basically taking the huge amount of wood matter that was left over after Florence, burning it to like a charcoal, and basically making a giant Brita filter. Yeah, that's essentially it. The one technical part is that you're not burning it through combustion. You're burning it through pyrolysis, which is the absence of oxygen. And the result is a much higher carbon content, a much more effective filter, essentially, right? But the gist of it is that. So you, so that's an example of functionality, right? So you can get in here and look at this waste stream for the value that it provides, invest in the tech that it produces. And yeah, there's an investment up front. But when we do the math, we're out, we win, right? Why not do it? It's, it's a no-brainer once you can get level set with it, and that, that's really the, the key. So in a world where the, the, the proceeds basically from selling super high-quality soil mm-hmm. to you know, local agriculture businesses, the whatever you can get from the recycling and the net energy gains from yeah. at a point where that tips – the scale, that's when it happens. This is, and this is pretty standard accounting at this point. Like the companies that do this work have this proven to the to the penny. Um, and it, they've got precedent for it. it. It's true cost accounting, right? And, and this is, you can't solve dynamic problems with linear thinking territory, right? Like what is the cost of putting, you know, chemicals in the river to people's health? That's, right now we call that an externality and it doesn't exist on a balance sheet, right? All we're saying is, look, we need to account for that, and it can be accounted for. I mean, we, will go down, we won't go down the rabbit hole, and it's a whole other topic, but, you know, Dr. Ralph Shammy does the ecosystem services of whales. Each whale produces $3 million of value in the world right now, whale watching, carbon sequestration, et cetera. Right now, the whale is worth zero in our economy until it's dead. It's worth forty to 60000 for its bones and its blubber, right? The incentive is wrong, so, and that's just based in the story. All we need to do is imagine things in a different and a more systematic way, which is how life works. And all of a sudden, the value rears its head, and we need to invest in that. And, and, and I would put a point on that to say it's not just the incentive. You know, the world, in my view, is written by narrative and incentive. We're not telling ourselves a story here, right? And that's a role that the county and the city need to play. Because right now, the narrative is this is a hole in the ground. The land is worth maybe roughly $5 million, but it costs us more than that over the long term to operate waste management. So this is that's the story. Yeah, and it's also about. out of sight, out of mind, right? Which is what trash is. Right? Yeah. People don't want to worry about it and want to think about it until they have to. And then what do we do? And that's the moment that we're in right now. I, that that to me is something spectacular. That a seven hundred acre lot, I believe it is, that is the tallest point in New Hanover County, right. is something no one, almost no one, has ever seen or been to. It is sort of remarkable. And, There's a story in and of itself there. Yeah. You know. I, I mean, I know people who see it for the first time, and it really impacts them. You know, yes. I gotta say that it, it hits people 
in a, in a deep way. I've heard many anecdotes where it's the first time, you know, your washing machine dies yeah. and you, 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 you got to take it out to the dump and drop it. And when you do that, you kind of drive around some of these monolithic mounds, you know, these earthworks. Go meet the seagulls. Go meet the seagulls. And you, you realize, you know, you've been driving for a couple of minutes. Like you were driving yeah. through the landfill. It's not just, it is so big. It is overwhelming. And, you know, that you make an important point. We started a, a garbage to gardens program at my son's school. And one of the components of it, we just set up a composting bin, a landfill bin, and a recycling bin. And then we helped the kids sort their trash. And we went from 20 bags of trash to the landfill to two the first day we did it. And so, and the kids not learned about it. But the, what brought that to mind was we take the kids out to the landfill to see it. I mean, my son, you know, he, he means well and he's got a heart of gold and he's picking up trash and he's you know dad we need more trash cans in the world he was like five right and and i he's throwing it away kind of this little thing and i was like yeah that's a good idea do you actually know where that goes and he was like no and yeah. next day we went out to the landfill and he was just like whoa he talks about it all the time everybody should go to the landfill everyone should go to the landfill i feel like it is a small-scale version of how astronauts feel when they see the earth <laughs> in space it's very yeah. it's very difficult to take you know, arbitrary geopolitical lines seriously once you've seen the planet from space. Well, it's very difficult to take the sort of narrative of waste management that I threw it away, I did a good job seriously once you've seen the planet. It's totally true. It should be like a human uh, field trip, you know? Yeah. (laughs) The most depressing, sobering, and possibly, you know, empowering. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I don't think there's a more important topic. And I actually was talking to the endowment group the other day about this because you start to look at the pillars that they represent and this type of play impacts all of them, right? It, it, it's not from an education standpoint, it's a health standpoint. Uh, it empowers people, I think that's a really important point you make, to know about these things. The tagline for my consulting company, Be Agriculture, is what we think we grow, right? If we're not thinking coherently about this, then we're gonna undermine what we would want if we were asked, right? And I think that's really what the, the pitch is here, is that we need to raise the profile of the story for the potential of this, and in doing that, everyone's going to get an intuitive hit to say, yep, that's what we need to do. What we have now is there's no imagination or dialogue around it whatsoever, which is why programs like this are so important. Yeah, I think that's the through line for me. And we only got about a minute left, so I want to, I want to close with this and your thoughts on this, yeah. is that it, every time I talk to you, it feels like that's the through line, is that the narrative here connects the individual person and their responsibility and their role in this and getting all the stakeholders to the table to do the thing um, and all of this is sort of guided by believing that this is the thing that exists and yeah. that we could do. Yeah, we have to internalize it. And a lot of that comes from story, right? That's what story does. It inspires and, and, and educates and does all of those things, and it has to be interesting. Um, but that also can – there's a lot of work that goes into the type of buy-in we're talking about here. And, you know, we'll part with a, maybe another program, but the uh, Natural Turf Management Program that's coming through Olson Park starting this fall, it's taken me almost two years to get it to this point. It's a lot of work, you know, to convince the city to buy in to receive the grant funds that are going to offset chemical agriculture in a park as a pilot. And we're going to prove it to ourselves. And that's how you do it. right? You can't just go full money and do everything at once. Cities don't work like that. So, yeah, there's a lot of work built up into this for sure. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely have you back and talk more about the Turf Project. Cool. Um, and who knows what else? Yeah, let's keep it going. <laughs> anyway, uh, Evan Foles, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, sir. All right. Well, that's just about all the time we have for this episode, but I wanted to make a little time for a send-off for Alexandria Sands. She is the outgoing assistant editor and journalist at Port City Daily. Alex, thanks for being here. Yes, thanks for having me. 
So, Alex, you've been at Port City Daily for a couple of years, and you've reported on this region for a little longer than that. Uh, we've all enjoyed your reporting, but now you are leaving. Yes, I am. I'm, uh, I'm off to Charlotte. I took another position with um, Axios, so I'm really excited about it, but I'm going to miss Wilmington a lot. So, first, congratulations. That's a, that's a good gig. Thank you. I wanted to ask, you know, what is, tell me a little bit about what it's been like covering Wilmington and New Hanover County, because I know it's, it's an interesting place. Oh, yeah. I mean, the stories are fascinating here. Um, there's just so many big projects that I'm just going to be keeping my eye on, even though I won't live here anymore. You know, Port City United has been so interesting to cover to see the evolution of that. Um, things like the hospital sale. How is that going to work out? What's the changes in the hospital going to be like? And of course, you've also covered our uh, at times tumultuous school board. Yes. And that's been a great time, you know. Um, the school board reporting, I like to say it's it's very important. It's also entertaining at times, so it's a nice little balance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a good thing if the school board meetings are going to go six-plus hours. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. There's definitely been some, you know, grab your popcorn and watch. <laughs> yep. Well, what else will you miss about uh, reporting or maybe just living here in Wilmington? Well, of course, the beach. <laughs> but my parents do live in Brunswick County, so... I will be back at the beach. No worries about that. Um, you know, you always have your favorite restaurant spots, the sunsets. <laughs> sunsets. Well, I'm sure Port City Daily will miss you and uh, our reporting community here in Wilmington will miss you. Best of luck at your new gig, and uh, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thank you. All right. Now that's all the time we have for this edition of the Newsroom. I want to thank our guests, Caroline Morin, Evan Folds, and Alexandria Sands. And of course, our WHQR technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Burnell. If you missed any part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org or find it as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or even better, ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll join us for the next edition of the Newsroom.